0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. go! go. Hey guys, welcome to the Tapping Go. My name
1: is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week, we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals. and We get their views on the latest sporting issues.
0: Today, this is an episode for you hardcore rugby fans out there. Our guest has been involved in five different World Cups with three different countries as the S and C coach. Trust me, today will be a good episode. Welcome, Calvin Morris. How's life in quarantine doing for you, Calvin?
2: It's good. It's good. It's a ho- whole lot less traveling, so it's a lot less jet lag. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I guess getting to know your family a little bit better than you normally <laughs> would. But, but yeah, it's been good, guys. And hopefully also good for you too as well. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's been good. Um, so I think the most obvious place to start is where rugby is right now in the world. So obviously players are slowly getting back to playing rugby, there's going to be a return. We see clubs around the world, such as New Zealand and Australia, having a short four-week preseason. What sort of effects is this going to have on the players and squads in total? Because there's probably been more injuries as players have taken some time off.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to predict what's going to go on. I think everyone is right to at least point out what we believe the risks are likely to be. Um, I think a lot of players will have been certainly in the early stages of lockdown, just you know almost happy to be released from the game as much as they love it. You know they're professionals; they train you know almost every day, and uh, their bodies get pretty beaten up through, you know through mid-season. So actually to have a break to start with, I think they'd have been pretty happy about it. But then there's the all right now we need to get you know we need to stay in shape, um, and I think just sort of staying physically active, again the professional players they'll have been pretty good um but you right in some of this you know the specific springs or you know obvious place to think about is is the scrum what those guys do and trying to train for that is very very hard when when you can um one hit scrum machine or or even more importantly live scrum um but then there's the other bit that they all do and uh, and you know that's take contact whether it's you know whether it's tackling or whether it's um ball carrying or rocking um there's the timing involved in that is, you know, players talk about it early in preseason when you get them back into contact. It it takes a little while to get that timing back. Um, it's interesting, you know. I don't know what the stats are like in the NRL. What's come out of the first few games of playing league? Um, AFL just got going again, and I've listened to a few SNC coaches from Australia and the approach they've taken. You know, trying and trying to get guys ready for the game in terms of the grand contacts and just how you're going to move in the game and sort of the timing of it and then moving into contact preparation at the end of a very mini preseason. Um, but everyone's tried to take a logical approach. Um, long answer, but, you know, if it's going to hit, is it going to be good enough? We'll soon find out. Yep. Yeah.
0: So I guess a couple of weeks ago, we saw Boden Barrett do a 4-minute 12 Bronco Breaking a club record for all the for all of you who don't know, Broncos a 1.2 kilometer shuttle run, and you've been involved with the I guess England program in 2003 and recently Japan in 2019. What are the main differences in sort of fitness and sort of strength between the the I guess rugby professionals now and back then?
2: Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I mean, the, the, the let's say start with the similarities. Um, there was uh, there, was a, there was definitely pride in both teams in the level of fitness that they kind of had and also wanted to get to. So the, the 2003 team were, you know, they, they were hugely competitive as a squad um, and gen- genuinely wanted to compete against one another um, in terms of their playing positions. So Matt Dawson versus Kieran Bracken and so on. And when you ask the players about that, that camp, um you know certainly the preseason season leaned into 2003 it was the level of competition that they talk about um, it was super hard but um but their pride in competing against one another and it was somewhat similar with the japanese team they were together for a long period of time um and they genuinely wanted to drive each other to really high levels of fitness and they absolutely got there um i mean in terms of what's happened generally across the game uh in 2003 we had 60 kilo dumbbells Um, and I remember two players doing bench press with 60 kilo dumbbells. By 2011 we had to have 80 kilo dumbbells made, Um, two players used them, almost all of the backs were using 60 kilo dumbbells, many could use 70 kilo dumbbells, it's just the strength levels involved in the game and that's primarily because of the professionalism of what they do in their clubs week in week out as that's improved you know when the national squad players come together they're seriously impressive, seriously strong.
1: Who were the players he's in the 80s? Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: back then, Manu language is the obvious one. Uh, but yeah, James Haskell, yeah. he had a crack at the 80s. I remember Tom Wood having a crack, can't remember how successful he was. Um, but there were some, and it, there have been a couple of the backs who would like to have had a go as well, Hugo <laughs> being one of them. Yeah, there were some strong boys around back then. Um, yeah, the, the Japan team their sort of yo-yo tests, their broncos were good but not incredible um but you know their, their sort of minimum squad standard was very good uh, but it was just what what they were able to achieve in in repeat rugby rehearsal which we can get into more detail you know if you guys like later in this talk but they um they, they were tremendously unfit, um, measured in a rugby way you know as 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 we've learned to use GPS and, um, and how we can essentially chop up periods of games and rehearse them in, in training sessions. Whereas back in 2003, we didn't have that. And it was more kind of repeat 100s, 200s, 400s, almost like track-based running. Um, and wrapped that around uh, rugby sessions. But guys in that, he asked, I asked Marty Johnson once, when, were you, when did you feel at your fittest? And he said, well, my repeat 800 metre runs were really good. So you know, it was a different emphasis, I guess, back then on how to get fit for the game, but in terms of the standards that they applied to it, I think the guys were fantastic.
1: Mm. And so, do you think, in looking forward, are there going to be any new piece of technology or techniques which SNC coaches are going to use, which could develop rugby even more and develop the way of fitness? Is there anything on the horizon in the next few years?
2: Yeah, I I, I do think so. Um, I think it'll be more in terms of giving each individual player some training that's a little bit more specific to their needs and that might be in um to sort of solve an injury prevention problem it might be to enhance performance and obviously both can work together Um, but i think it'll be that it'll be a characterization of the way you're put together and how you move you're better suited to this kind of training than this kind of training at the moment we're not really good at that Um, we're much better at giving the team what it requires um, and using GPS to say perhaps that's a bit too much for you in this session or you need to do a little bit more, but they're based around not that sophisticated um, uh, variables that come from the GPS system. I, I do think we'll get more sophisticated and better.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so on that topic, of GPS, so they were first implemented in training in 2009 <clears throat> and then in matches in 2010 what what sort of how did that completely change how rugby
2: teams operated in training and so on um yeah it it definitely took a while because you suddenly had so much data you didn't really know what to do with it um you and, and also it was very difficult to translate what um a work rate of 120 meters per minute for example you've you know in in one minute you've covered 120 meters is sort of, what does that mean? What did that look like in terms of the rugby? That it does The rugby might have been good, it might have been bad. And 120 meters in a minute isn't actually that much in terms of a distance to cover. But if you've made five tackles in that, actually you've worked pretty hard. So it was making sense of um, that data and how it translated to good or bad rugby. Um, and that definitely took a good, I think a good few years, probably five years. Um, But now I think teams are starting to use it. They're they're sort of they've got their objectives of why they're using it are are clearer. So there's coaches who say today's training I want it to be above the level of uh, a game, um, an international match, club match, whatever the level is, Um, and they've got reasonably good ideas of how to do that, what to manipulate, and what the standards are, Um, and we've also become quite good at. individual prescription in terms of load that's too much this you know that's you know that's not enough for you and day by day i think those two things um we've, we've definitely across the sport got much better at certainly in tier one
1: mm. and so we had sir clive on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and so we was just wondering from a being a member of his team what was it like mm. with being under his coaching style and what sort of image was it amongst the squad members to create
2: yeah he um he was definitely. It's funny looking back. Well, almost twenty years later, <laughs> um, from when I was there, he uh, he was definitely visionary. Um, when I joined, the, the the guys were already the best team in the world. They were world ranked number one. Um, so it was an interesting, you know, again, hard to reflect at the time just how good it was. It was you know after that you look back. But he was he was. He wanted no excuses um, and no compromise. He never wanted us you know, as a squad to look back and go, if only we had. So hence, there was experts everywhere. The team was very well funded. Um, He demanded that from the RFU, and the RFU were excellent at supporting him um, and the team. And the the, the players had a similar attitude. So he he drove that really, really well. He had an understanding of what he calls the basics. So yeah, you absolutely have to get these things right set-piece being one of them, restarts. It's almost, they're not boring, but less exciting parts of the game, but they create possession, they create opportunity, and you have to get them right. And he knew that and statistically could support it, which also influenced his selection. He did things like that really, really well. He knew what his building blocks for the game were. I want no compromise, no excuses, um, so you'll have the best of everything. And if we lose then, it's because we're not good enough at rugby. And I think having that as just as you know that's how you set out your store, I think that's really impressive um, yeah he, yeah there's, there's there's many things he did well, and I guess one of the simple thing was um, there was there was a management meeting every well, sorry, there was a meeting every day of all staff and all players, and that was about fifty people um, and that's rare, funnily enough, it might sound crazy. Why would you not do that? but he did it every day that everyone in the team had an opportunity to talk. Most didn't, but you had an opportunity to. So one, it meant that everyone's on the same page with whatever the message was, Um, but also someone comes up with a good idea. It doesn't doesn't matter who said it, it's a good idea and it gets implemented straight away. Um, And there's a parallel there with uh, Dave Brailsford from British Cycling and Sky. He's also very, very good at doing the same thing moving forward with good ideas for meetings and giving everyone the opportunity to talk. Mm. So some basic stuff that Clyde did really well, as well as obviously more sophisticated things.
0: Yep. So you're involved with England in 2003, which obviously won it 2007, which they made the final and 2011, which they went to the quarters. What would you say were the yeah. main differences between the 2003 and seven squad and the 2011 squad?
2: Uh, yeah. So, so 2003, very settled squad, favourites, world ranked number one, beating everyone home and away. You know, you just then go into Australia with a bunch of pressure on your shoulders, really. But the guys who created the opportunity to win, they knew how they were going to play. Um, I think the job of Dave Reddin and Dave Reddin was the lead SNC coach at the time, and I'd just come in as assistant. Um, our job to prepare the team was actually more simple because they knew how to play rugby and what kind of rugby they, they were going to play. So we could take, we tried to make it sophisticated naturally, but, you know, looking back, I think it was reasonably basic, really as strong as we could make them, as big as we can make them, as fit as we can make them. In 2007, it was a bit different. You still had the core of of an experienced team with some newbies and how to put that, you know, they get that group together to play a kind of rugby that was appealing. It was a bumpy process, but ultimately successful. You know, getting to the final, I think was a great achievement. Um, and, and super enjoyable as, as well um, once we go over the disappointment of the early rounds um, and 2011 was um, it still felt like a creation of a new team we would had some really disappointing performances and some really good ones in a couple of years previous but the team still wasn't settled and a style of play wasn't really settled and i think we were just we went actually with a fit team really combative team they're fantastic in contact um and we just came up against the french team that wanted to prove something in the same way as the 2007 english team did and they just got their game plan right and lost by a point in the final so you know and mm. i don't think england could lose to france as they did in the six nations this year it just you know when, when the french team turn up they're bloody good
1: yeah completely as so, going from a tier one countries like england you then went to georgia tier two i was wondering whether you could just enlighten us a bit of like the experience you have in georgia obviously it's pretty very different to the england set up the is so well funded yeah
2: um yeah it's very different Uh, i mean in saying in saying that there were no excuses for me in terms of um let's say the environment the equipment the facilities um what the georgians had was it, not beautiful looking but they had everything there they've got a great a fantastic training base in Tbilisi um the pitch was half decent good gym training dojo which was built for us so like a wrestling center um hotel kitchen everything's on site it's, it's really really good um the, the the challenge really for I think that, the, that there's a couple of challenges one is that the way that Whichever two tier two team it is, the way that they play the game, and if you've watched any Georgian rugby, you know the, their set piece, particularly the scrum, is you know world class. And in contact, they're incredibly physical. They they thrive on it. Um, you know, wrestling's a national sport, part of their upbringing. Um, they're warriors. Everyone's tried to invade them through the years, so they, they just like fighting. Um, so they're really combative. Um, it's the it's playing a more expansive game and and having players in the team who've held a rugby ball and passed a rugby ball for enough time to have a good sense of time and space, like a like a Kiwi would growing up. Um, so that's their challenge. The other challenge is I think it's the mental one, and this is all tier twos is believing you're good enough to be a tier one, which Japan have got there, Fiji have done it a couple of times, um, Tonga and Samoa a couple of times, but. Georgie, not yet, but they have beaten tier two teams ranked above them, and so they, they sort of get in there. So that, that's the challenge, is, is helping them believe they can achieve something they've not done before, and then helping them, help, trying to add to what kind of rugby they can play.
0: Do you think it's time for Georgia to be introduced into the Six Nations now?
2: I, I do, and I mean, I can be biased because I've spent time with them, um, but I think they're... If you compare them to Italy, for example, in the time that Italy have had in the Six Nations now, and you know they, they, they've beaten teams, so they, they've demonstrated they're good enough to be there. But I think given the same amount of time in there, Georgia would be equally as good, if not better. Um, when you look at the level of the Georgian under-20s, they're in the Junior World Cup, um, and they've been in the Junior World Cup for the last five years. They've beaten Scotland they've been Ireland, they've been Argentina. So they keep developing young talent now, so they're likely to stay good for a while. And their rugby infrastructure in Georgia is also good, Domestic 10-team domestic competition, et cetera. So they're not going to get any better unless they can play against Tier 1s more regularly. Um, so uh, absolutely, what, what their route should be for that is another one for the world of rugby to decide. Um, but I think most people out there would go, can't see a reason why there shouldn't be promotion relegation. We welcome it. And Tbilisi is a great fun city to, to go to as well, in much the same way as Rome is. It's also on the same latitude too. It. It's dead warm in the summer, just in case you didn't know that. Yeah. Mm.
1: And so obviously then, most recently this year, you were with Japan in, um, in the autumn for the World Cup. And so most teams have a ball and play time of around 36 minutes in a full test. Mm. Jamie Joseph came to, to you, I believe, and said that he wants to get close to 50. So what, what were your thoughts on this? As a yeah. For rugby,
2: yeah. So I mean, yeah. Truth, truth. I'd love to claim all the credit for how well Japan played. Um, but my job was a sort of consultant advisor, mainly to the, the strengthening and conditioning team. I'll come back to talk about those guys in a minute, um, and to add any value that I could, because I, I oversaw a lot of programs in tier two, and still have friends in tier one. So you, you sort of get ideas from all over the place. Um. So, yeah, so it wasn't, yeah, exactly like Jamie said, right, we're going to play for 50 minutes and off we go. Um, it was more, they wanted to play the game, and Clive used to say this, is want to play the game quicker than anyone else. Um, and and they were very creative and inventive about how they would do that. Tony Brown, the attack coach, was brilliant, um, but they then needed the fitness to support it. So it was, even if we don't play for um 50 minutes we've only played for 38 to 40 what goes on in that 40 minutes is going to be super impressive um and will be difficult for other teams to to, to keep up with us so for example in the scotland japan um pool game you know one of the best rugby games that i think anyone's seen for a good while um the ball in play was 38 minutes every time you score a try you lose a minute or two and there were eight tries in that game um, the ball in play, Wales South Africa semi final was also thirty eight minutes. And you go, which game would you prefer to watch? Um, but but if you think about the movement in those games, one was a box kick festival, and then the other one was fantastic ball in hands attacking rugby. Um, but the way Japan played, that was how they trained. You know, for seven eight months together, um, to be able to play that kind of multi phase. Um, attack from everywhere but wherever you can create and find space then don't don't give the ball away keep it in attack um so so yes uh they trained they trained extremely hard and a, a simple way to put it is so if a ball in play in a decent game is 40 minutes you get 40 minutes in 80 minutes they trained so that they could do 40 minutes of 15 on 15 in training but they did that inside 60 minutes to the density of what they're able to do, and that was real good attacking rugby. Um, that was done in less time. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you've, you've cut out all the rest, essentially, and yet you can still maintain your pace of play. Fabulous. Very creative and a very good management team to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. They had that thing with the Sunwolves B, didn't they? Which was quite clever in that this sort of contract all, all the players, was it?
2: yeah they, uh, they they had the basically japan a yeah the yep. japan wolves um, so they were able to balance um, so so guys who needed sort of a higher level of of rugby they essentially played some more super rugby um, and those guys who either needed more time to gain gain fitness Michael leach the captain was a good example he had a, a pretty bad injury it took him a while to come back from it but he needed to play some rugby he joined the the Japan A team, and they toured Australia and New Zealand and played against the B teams of like Crusaders and, um, and the other super rugby teams. Um, won all those games as well. So they, they came into the World Cup camp with a lot of confidence. But you, you're dead right. I mean, and to have that degree of control of your broad squad of 50 players um, for such a long time is rare in rugby. And the good thing is that the management were able to make the most of it.
1: So where do you think the future of Japanese rugby lies? Well, they're only going to get better, surely, with Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown at the realm.
2: Absolutely. And um, you think of the, the work that Eddie did leading to 2015, that Jamie did, um, and the fitness coach, who I worked with, Simon Jones, it was fantastic. And he's definitely got parallels in his character and the standards he sets with Dave Redding, who I worked with in 2003. And Dave set endurance standards, you know, fitness standards for the team, which were incredible. And it was Simon who said the same for Japan. So the, the guys have got that sort of heritage now over, you know, two two World Cup cycles. Um, the game's never been more popular in Japan, in a you know, in a country with a 125 million population. Um, and there are obviously other you know nationalities of birth playing for Japan as well, which gives you a certainly more size in your team. You're dead right. You know, you can only see them getting better. Um, they, like Georgia, like Fiji, arguably, are the ones who need more Tier 1 competition. With that, they absolutely um, will get better. Mm.
0: Yeah. So I'm aware that you're also involved with the British cycling. I was wondering what the biggest difference is in sort of um, winning mentality and sort of, um, I guess, team ethic between the rugby players and the cyclists.
2: Good question. Um, y- yeah, I had uh, a very a very enjoyable um three years working with British Cycling um through to Rio and it's, it's interesting there's a I think it's a different type of person that chooses either you know to be a track cyclist which is the team that I work with or um you know an international rugby player, a team sport player and you're, you're driven by different things um and I uh, had a similar experience working in athletics years ago in individual sports. But, but everyone's still driven and committed to succeed. That's, that's the parallel. They just are. Um, just choose a different sporting outlet for it. What was interesting is British Cycling, like all the Olympic sports, funded primarily through UK sport. And they're funded based on medals. So if you win X many medals, you get this, this amount of money. Um, and it's a really honest but rigorous process and the teams have to come up with what they call a what-it-takes-to-win model. A very really strong deterministic model, if we can cycle this time in this race, we should win. What is that going to take? And you, you have every layer of the model written out after that. There's arguments that it's always more difficult to do that in team sports. I'm not sure it's more difficult, it's just different. Um, but Dave read in again, um, he just published his what-it-takes-to-win model for the Football Association. Um, that was used for England football when they went to the 2018 World Cup. So it can be done, and it's something that binds the team that everyone works towards. And Clive had a version of it in 2003. Um, Eddie Jones will have had a version in, for, for the World Cup last year. Um, it's That's the sort of learning that I think team sports could make more of. It's being really de- being more deterministic about what they think it's going to take to win. Um, that was something, as I say, that, you know, that, that's all done very, very well with British cycling.
1: Yeah. And so do you think there are any lessons that can be transferred from, I know there is, it's team-based, but relatively solo still sports, cycling, to rugby?
2: Um, it, it, it's as it's much of that, really. I think it's, so, so for, let's see, let's take a sprint cyclist. They... That they'll have a good idea of what time they need to ride in, in order to be successful if it's going to be the Olympic Games, and then the various factors um, based off of that. Actually, let's take team pursuit is better, but it's it, that's you know it's not, better. it's easier to give you an example. Um, the guys still need to be strong and powerful. They they're sort of producing when they're on the front of the line, seven hundred plus watts. Um, and it, but it's a four minute event, so it's kind of like middle distance in um, track and field. Uh, So, you need a really big aerobic engine as well. You need to be quite strong and quick, but you need a really big aerobic capacity. So, you're always making decisions on, well, what should this, you know, why should they bias their training? And that's no different from a rugby player. Do they need to get stronger, fitter? What skills do they need to work on on the pitch? It's a balance of decisions. But in cycle, they lay out the model really, really well. So, it's like over this next four or eight week block, we're going to train this here are our expectations and then everyone involved in that program will sit down at the end of that block and honestly and rigorously go through it did we hit the goals why why not and so on don't i didn't in my time in rugby i've not seen that done so well yeah it's it's kind of rigorously checking on the decisions you're making to know that you're going in the right direction the whole ship's moving in the right direction um that that's what i think I think we'll get better and in the best places in rugby, it's probably happening. But that was the difference when I compare the two sports.
0: Mm. So quite interesting, I guess, the book Moneyball, where they take baseball in a purely statistical sense and pretty much select the team in a whole, a completely quantitative manner. Do you think that could ever happen in rugby? Like,
2: or is it just a different game? I think it already has happened to a degree. But not in the, it's it's not done. So so Clive, for example, what he would call his basics um, and why certain players were selected in the team um, was with, um, it was sort of crystallized in his mind. So it might be based on the scrum or the line out. I need this player for that reason. Even if there's more athletic, more rounded, overtly attractive, but Player to play in that position. I know what I'm getting from this player, and that's absolutely critical to our overall game plan. Um, I heard uh, I had to chat with a friend in South Africa who said to me, and this was six months before the World Cup. um Razi Erasmus already knows who his best team is, and he he meant it from a statistical perspective. So this player, he gives me this. These combinations of players, they give me this. And, you know, that overall map means I'm likely to win more games than I lose. And so it's kind of already being done, a money ball version in team sports. It's well done in basketball. It's well done in ice hockey as well uh, in the States. So a plus minus system, if you've heard of that.
1: Mm. Well, I think that's, we're getting close to that, what we've got time for. But just one more thing, which we've asked every one of our guests when they come on, is like their favourite part of their career. So you' are state, it might be a certain period rather than one exact moment. But is there anything that really sticks out for you?
2: Good question. Um, in okay, in rugby, uh, I had some great times in track and field, and Rio was obviously special with British Cycling. Um, in rugby, uh, 2007 semi-final, beating France in their home stadium, we yeah. won the toss as well. We had the home dressing room. Everything about that, um, making the final was super enjoyable with the team I you know team I was part of then that was wonderful. Um uh most disappointing certainly 2011 World Cup uh to, to exit and all kinds of stuff going on. Um that was that was disappointing quarterfinal stage. Um but then yeah the the sort of 2015 with Georgia getting two wins coming third um, in the pool which gave automatic qualification. Uh, for the first time in Georgia's history that was uh, you know, it felt lovely because you could see what it meant to the team, meant to the people when they got back home, the kind of reception they got. Um, and then even yeah, I was lucky I was in the stadium for Japan, Scotland. Um, wow. So watching, watching, yeah, I said watching the team under pressure play like they trained in the best way that they could, um, you know, to win the way they did and, you know, get into the quarters was just fabulous. So that was, that was also lovely different reason but
1: lovely mm. well calvin yeah. once again thank you so much this has been really interesting for us i think yeah, everyone really who listens really to this can be can definitely get an insight into rugby which you've not necessarily considered before especially if you don't play it but um yeah so i just want to thank you once more
2: you guys you're very welcome yeah well done in putting this series together you're, you know you're, you're pulling together some really interesting speakers to listen to i Well, I've already listened to Clive. I will certainly be listening to Eddie when you get him on too. So, yeah, good luck to you guys. Thank you
1: very much, and then thank you very much to everyone else for listening as well. And we'll see you next week. Come
2: on! Come on! Sports Social Podcast Network.